Welcome to Runners Radio, where we bring you the stories and the teachings of the world's leading high performers, as well as some bloody amazing human beings as well. If you find some value in the show, we would greatly appreciate you taking a few seconds to leave us a five-star review. It really does enable us to help a lot more people. The show is brought to you by Runners.com. That's R-U-N-N-E-Z.com. Runners is your online running coach, no matter your level or aspirations. Just put runners in your ears and off you go. Without further ado, let's get on to the show. A true legend of Australian sport. So if you are an overseas listener, just buckle in and have a listen to this. Anytime a leader speaks, everyone is listening. Everyone is watching. What are you rewarding? What are you challenging? family, friends, and it probably hit me then how important the moment was to literally hundreds of thousands of people. So those next few years, uh, Ruzi, the Swans, they never really seem to bottom out, which I think, again, is a credit to the system we spoke about earlier, the process that we just, just refused to be talent-based and refused to just rest on your laurels. It always came back to the process, which you've obviously followed through really well in business and other stuff, mate. Um, coming to the end of the time there, the boys were getting older. Um, how did it all come about where you said, okay, I'm just going to take a step back from, from life at the very head, head role? And then, I guess, take us through that period where you were just you were, you were a dad and, and your husband and spend a bit more time and then you said okay enough's enough I need to have a few years out of the game or out of head coach yeah I always had this philosophy it was funny as a player that a coach probably had a six or seven year shelf life um, and that was probably predicated on not necessarily winning a premiership so it wasn't black and white but I sort of felt leading into I think my last year was 2010 leading into that season um, John Longmire was starting to get you know inquiries about becoming a senior coach and I sat down, I thought, well, you know, one another year will sort of take it to eight and a half that I've been coaching. You know, I think it's time for the club to have a, a change. Um, not that I appointed John, but I wanted the club, if they felt John was the right person, I didn't want to retire at the end of the next year and then John had got a job somewhere else, you know, and I was leaving anyway. So I sat down with Tammy and Andrew Ireland and Richard Collis and, and then we all decided, you know, that it was going to be my last year, and then they appointed John as a successor. So it worked out really well for the myself, the footy club, and obviously John also. So I think I think it was more of a case of just understanding that self awareness that you know you've got to have enormous energy to be able to do it. It's a it's a broad skill set, and it takes a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of passion. So yeah, getting out and the Sydney Swans Academy was starting at the time. So I was really fortunate, Andrew Island asked me to be involved in that. Chris Smith, who's a really good mate of mine, and I ran the academy for three years. So my boys were both in the academy. So it allowed me some time to sort of step back from coaching, do some media work, work for the academy, which I loved, you know, shaping the next sort of generation of, of players and men. A lot of them obviously didn't go and play for the Swans, but we had a significant impact on their lives. I love working with Smithy and, yeah, had a really good three years before getting back into it. Yeah, so the media stuff is what people see on the surface, which was, was a fair chunk of your life as well, on the couch and shows like that in prime time. But yeah, that, that, that kind of 
people wouldn't know that about the senior academy and those kind of things. And um, I think you were coaching one of the boys. Did you coach the junior footy as well in that period, or was that when you were actually coaching Sydney? Yeah, I sort of coached Tyler because in Sydney, with with all due respect, a lot of the dads yeah. were rugby league dads or soccer dads or whatever. So um, I was always sort of coaching Tyler's team more. So Dylan's team had a, a guy, Mick Keogh, who's a really good fella, came from I think Albury area, so he had a bit of a, an AFL background. Um, so I got involved in that team as well, but mainly sort of coached Tyler's team and then coached the academy. So both the boys through the academy, which was, yeah, it was great to be. And even when I was um, coaching in Sydney, I was, you know, able to coach the boys on the Sundays if we weren't playing Sunday or if I'd fly back from interstate Saturday night. So it was really, it was a really important part of my life has always been the family. Really talks to that life balance that we, we haven't really touched on too much yet, but you detest the word work-life balance, which I, I, you, are, you do a lot now in the corporations you work with, and we'll, we'll flick to that later, but amazing life balance and, and self-awareness. So you had to say, what's really important to me? What's really important to me? Yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously, the reason I don't talk about work-life balance is because it sounds like you know, you're, you're completely separating the two, and I just don't think you can do that. You know, like, oh, I remember you know, on a Thursday, I'd take the boys to to brekkie every Thursday morning. Now, that fitted around my work, but it wasn't a case of Thursday was a work day. I remember, you know, the players would come in the rooms after the game and, you know, it depends on your job and what you do as, as how interactive they can be, both become. But if you have this if you have this balance, this overall balance, you can, you can, you know, sort of say, well, today, you know, I can work from home and, you know, drop the kids off at school. You know, tomorrow I've got to be in a meeting at, you know, the other way, if you look at it, well, no, Thursday's a work day, so I can't see my family. So that, that's probably the way I look at things, is just getting your, the balance of your life right. And it doesn't always work out as simple as that. But I think if you've got self-awareness, so, yeah, the ability to always involve my family where I could. Um, I remember the boys always wanted to come in the box and, and help me coach, but I said, boys, you probably have to draw the line draw on that. Draw the line, just to, yeah, just, 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 help just uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that wasn't going to happen. No, that's the thing. It's just, I guess, with the, the businesses you work with today, um, your performance by design and, and everyone that you work with today, I think it's, it's just been putting it on their radar. Like yeah. Just putting it on their radar because there's a fair chance that for 20 years, some of these CEOs and other leaders wouldn't ever have be on their radar. It just, and unfortunately, you, you get pulled back in and that's happened post-COVID already. People are getting pulled back in yeah. those 70 hour weeks, um, nose to the grindstone, you forget what actually what actually is important. So really important there. Moving on to Melbourne, which, which, um, Outside of looking in back then, I was the best possible appointment by some margin. Uh, but how did it come about behind the scenes? Because this was a massive appointment for the club. Uh, we'd been down and out for so long and just had a, a real, again, again, outside of looking in real, uh, from a culture point of view, weren't there anywhere near it. Uh, how did it all come about behind the scenes? What started the wheels in motion for you eventually to say, yeah, I'll take the role? Yeah, well, probably about towards the middle of... Um year was it 2012 or 2000 must have been 2012 I was working with the academy and yeah I had a discussion with Andrew Island and Andrew sort of said look we you know we're gonna have to give you a fairly big heavy pay cut and you know we can't keep doing this anymore and I was sort of like look and the club were amazing the swans were incredible to me so I sort of then started to think about okay well that's great I've really enjoyed my time um you know what's next up until that stage I really hadn't thought about coaching again because I knew I had to put all my energy into it Probably coincided with Peter Jackson ringing me um, a number of times after Neildy got um, you know, exited from the Melbourne Footy Club. And then I started to think more about it. And then I met with the leadership group. And that was probably the turning point. I met with the leadership group towards the end of the 
the season. Spoke to them and had a really good conversation with them. And then it just came about that it's time to, you know, to get back in, move back to Melbourne where I'm originally from, um, reconnect with family and friends and all that. So there's many, many reasons. But probably the main one was, you know, the timing and the energy was sort of back. And I, I believed I could help the footy club. That was the main thing. I believed the, the leaders were a good group of leaders, good people. And, you know, I just wanted to get in and sort of help them, you know, become a more successful footy club. Not too different to a business that you'd have now, really. Uh, if you're looking at the synergy between the Demons of 2013 and businesses all around the world that you're helping, um, pretty uh, take us through the first few games because um, you've got a lot to change and it's no fault of the players, just the way it was here. So you've got a lot of talent out there on the field. You've got the Nathan Joneses and these kind of boys. But take us through, I guess, the whole transition between where you where you knew you'd come from, Sydney Swans, what you guys had built, which was like elite and phenomenal, to what you found when you got to, to Melbourne. Yeah, look, probably the main thing is that the good people there. So that was a really good start. You know, um, Glenn Bartlett, really good um, chairman. Peter Jackson, a really good CEO. Josh Marnie, a young football manager, but a really good person. Todd Viney, a lot of time for. So what I liked about it, probably one of the reasons, you know, I took the job because I, I knew some of the people. David Misson was my fitness coach in Sydney, and he was also the fitness coach at Melbourne. And I was able to bring in my own staff, Georgie Stone, um, Danny McPherson, Ben Matthews, Brett Allison. So that was a real, and I knew Jade Rawlings pretty well. So I was really confident in the staff. The players were good guys. But what you've got to remember in a footy club is is that 18 to 22-year-old period is really important. You know, if you're coming to a footy club and you're trying to create really good habits and standards, that's the time. It's four years where you've got a chance to get them and mould them and shape them. So we had to reprogram you know, pretty much every single player other than the ones that we brought in ourselves, you know, at an under-18 level and we could train them from day one. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of work to be done, but there was an appetite for hard work. The players didn't shirk it. You know, they just needed to be reprogrammed and, you know, we had to narrow the focus a lot in that first year. You know, talk about, um, you know, winning your own ball, contested ball was a huge focus. Tackling was a huge focus, you know, and then defence, setting our defence and getting that, you know, I think, the average scores against were like 122 points or something like that. So we needed to get that down. So I was really clear on what I needed to do and knew it was going to take some time but had really good people around me to help. It's a good start when you've got uh, those 10 names that you mentioned and obviously the playing list as well. Like no one goes out there, well, you spoke off, no one goes out there to lose. No, no one goes out there to perform badly at any level, uh, let alone the highest level. Um, the, the process, it's, a, it's, a, it's hard when you're coming from a long way back and, and those boys weren't used to singing the song too often. How do we get them to believe in system, system, process, process, as opposed to looking to the further ahead to the outcome? Or how, how does that happen at a side like that? Because it is a little bit easier um, when, you, when you're finishing in the eight every year at Sydney. Yeah, I think the biggest difference, when I took over at Sydney from Rodney E, I mean, we played in the grand final in 96. I think we played four or five different final series. Yeah, so when I took over at Sydney, they already had a history of winning games of football and knew what it looked like. At Melbourne, there was about six years of of not winning many games the year before I took over, they won two and lost 20. So you're right. There's a lack of awareness about what makes a winning team. You know, and they were very outcome-focused. They were very worried when the scoreboard started ticking over. You could tell the body language, you know. They get really frustrated with each other. So it took a while just to get them to focus on the process. All you can, what can you control in that moment? The opposition's kicked the goal. Where do you have to stand at the next stoppage? Um, we've kicked the goal, where do you have to stand at the next stoppage? So it took us a while to sort of, you know, really reprogram them. Um, and also who had the appetite to do it. You know, some players don't have the appetite to be successful. And when I say that, like you said, they try, 
But I talk about effort and maximum effort. You know, there's a, there's a, a big difference between effort. Everyone in the AFL system gives effort. Richmond gives maximum effort. Yeah, you know, and the top teams give maximum effort. So you have to decipher as well who had the appetite for it, give them 12 months, make some changes. So, yeah, it's, it's not an easy process, but when you get good people and you find out who wants to work and who doesn't want to work, you can sort of work your way through it. I think it's trainable as well. Like obviously, when you're neuroplasticity, we know about how the brain can be remoulded. And it, it is for a 24-year-old athlete to, for the first time in his life to be or her life to be getting told about just bringing it right back. Because often we are. Well, people get carried away with premierships, BNFs, running PBs, um, winning medals, whatever. But we just bring it right back. And actually, over the process, 500, 600, 800 days does take care of itself. But not easy. To, especially 44 different individuals. You've got. Um, you spoken really well about empathy fatigue and that, which I think gets sugar-coated a lot with leaders and coaches. You've also spoken about this, I think, mate, you can speak to this, but um, how people can sometimes just put it on the surface about how easy it can be to lead. It's not an easy job. And when you're going into a role like that, I can imagine the genuine fatigue coming into a role like that day to day. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a really difficult job. And I, and I think having an understanding of where coaches are coming from, you know, coaches, most coaches come from being assistant coaches. You know, they've had probably eight direct players, one part of the ground where that's midfield. And then all of a sudden you become a senior coach and you're asked to manage 44 players, medical staff, fitness staff, you know, leadership groups, all those sorts of things. So it's a, a big jump up. So I think having done it at Sydney and, and probably when I arrived, I, I understood then why Peter was desperate to get someone who'd done the job before because it was an impossible job with all due respect for a novice assistant coach to become a senior coach at the Melbourne Footy Club. It was The, the skill set would have been too difficult to do it. You know, would have been able to learn on the job. It would have taken a while. So I think... Yeah, being able to bring you know the, the people I brought in, having Dave missing there, so the, the infrastructure was really good, but yeah, the ability to navigate between high standards and good relationships and and know when to be able to you know be a bit harder on the players, be a bit softer on the players, more direct, less direct, you know, but also know exactly what we wanted to achieve within the first twelve months. I think that was a really big part of it as well. Not get too focused on all parts of the game. I think one of the biggest mistakes young coaches can make is try to fix everything. You just can't fix everything. You've got to be really clear, and we were really, really clear in the first 12 months what we wanted to achieve. That's brilliant advice in business, in, in sport, in life in general. And another one I, I love, I know it's part of your 25 pillars that um, people can find definitely online or in, on his book, but Bruzy speaks of, and this must have been a massive part of being an experienced coach, uh, that I don't know if the he experiences would have been able to do this, but uh, not not... If you've got nothing positive to say, just wait till Monday or don't fly off the handle in the heat of the moment because it's nothing good can come from that. So you must have had to use that a few times, no doubt, in that kind of era. Yeah, 100%. I think there's an awareness of where the players are at. You know, like you can imagine how emotional the game is. You know, when you've lost a game, you've got the MCG, you might have three or four minutes to get from the coach's box to the change room sort of thing. So, yeah, you don't have time to gather the information. I've seen the relationships destroyed from coaches to players after that time. So those 25 points were really valuable. I talk about as, you know, holding myself accountable to the leader that I wanted to be. Yeah, and that was really important to have those notes in my desk for three years. And I think the big, the other thing too, at Melbourne, I was pretty positive, you know, and, and you know, the first sort of 12 months, we're trying to find positives because the players had, it was really difficult time. Six years of losing. Yeah, you know, they didn't go out not to win. 
So we sort of had to be pretty positive through that period. I think as leaders, we often just pick out the negative stuff. And that's another big message I give to the corporates. Yeah, well done, well done, well done. And then all of a sudden, if you are going to give, you know, you need to do this better, it doesn't come on the back of no positive feedback. And then people go, oh, the only time Rusey's talking to me is when he's telling me what not to do. So I think as leaders, we've got to get better at, in real time saying, oh, mate, thanks very much for helping me yesterday. That was really good what you did in that meeting. You know, I was sort of flowering a bit. Or, mate, thanks for calling that client the other day. Really appreciated that. And in footy terms, we had to, even though we weren't winning many games, we had to highlight the positives and be really clear. So our reviews were really clear. You know, this is what we do. Well, this is what we not do. Does everyone understand that? Really clear. Um, so players would never walk out of a review you know, at Melbourne and Sydney not really understanding exactly what was ex- expected of them, both from a positive and negative point of view. That's brilliant. I think you, well, four to one is the feedback yeah. ratio. Is that right? And that's that's perfect. And also playing to their strengths, like the AFL list or, or employee, you've got lots of strengths. So let's not. It's hard in bad times to remember the strengths sometimes, like what whether it's football or business or whatever it may be. So continue to continue to raise their strengths up and make them aware of what they've done well, which is bloody important. That's that's monstrous. Last one on footy, we'll move on. But I think in the current um, climate, in any climate really, since the last 30, 40 years of footy media, uh, from a coach's perspective, it gets, I think, it gets lost in translation what they actually are trying to do. I'd love to see like um, someone who's, who's in the media at the moment, maybe a Buckley, who always seems to be in the media, or maybe Clark over a lesser extent, but how, like I'd love to uh, them to be able to articulate better what, what you just yep. articulated to me, but it doesn't get spoken about ever. And it's just, it's all just, um, it's just this open slather really. For I think part of the problem too is you just don't have any ex-coaches in the media. I think Ross Lyon's the only ex-coach in the media. So, and I was a player myself, but the players only see the game through their own lens. So when you're listening to majority of past players talk about the game, as I said, I was one as well, but it probably wasn't until I coached, I fully understood the implication of what Jaden Short and Kate McIntosh have on Dustin Martin. Yeah, but if you're a player, it just becomes about Dustin Martin. Yeah, you don't understand what Nathan Buckley's trying to do in relation to 42 players because, as I said before, even the most selfless player, yeah, Brett Kirk was probably the most selfless player that, that I coached. But it still fundamentally had to prepare himself every week, even in their most selfless player. You know, whereas a coach understands exactly, and if you look at the way coaches talk about the game, if you do listen to a Ross Lyon, their perspective on the game is so dramatically different. So if you're giving them more of a voice, then people start to understand, okay, that's what Nathan Buckley has to do with this particular group. But the media has become more about you know, headlines than it is about facts, you know. So that becomes really frustrating, you know, for footy clubs, particularly when they're rebuilding. And I must admit, my first two years at Melbourne, I was on 360, and it was the most productive part of the week because I could articulate to the Melbourne supporters and I didn't have to leave it up to the media to tell them because the media, yeah, the media just don't understand fully what goes on inside a footy club. So the information gets very, very distorted. Every Monday or Tuesday night, whatever it was, you could you could articulate. Yeah, you could articulate to the Melbourne supporters. Look, you know, yeah, we lost by sixty points, but you know, we tried Nathan Jones on such and such, and it seemed to work really well. So you were talking directly to, you know, I mean, Bucks. If we're using him as an example, probably only gets, yeah, you know, twice a week, maybe a 
five-minute clip here or there or a 30-second clip of the news that he can talk to the members, you know. So it's really difficult for him when he's under pressure. And we've seen coaches, when they're under pressure, just get piled on by the media and then the fans start to agree with the media and don't really understand what's going on inside the footy club. I guess just stop, just thinking left field then. There's probably ways that you can email members videos and that kind of stuff, but that's but that is hard. In the, in the mainstream media, it's very superficial. Media, yeah. And it's very surface stuff, which doesn't really play to anyone's hands. Really. No, it's just, no. just to click, get some clickbait. Um, that's that's powerful, I think, because moving forward into... You finished up at Melbourne, you said, now, you were clearly going to do something in performance. You, they're a competitive beast. You, you're a leader of men and, and humans in general. Um the business uh, performance by design, I love the nurture group stuff as well, by the way, because I reckon that's really important. Um, so take, take us through the next couple of years, family, the boys, Tammy, the lot. Yeah, so finishing up at, um, at Melbourne 2016, I think it was, and then I'd been contacted by a guy in Toronto, actually an Australian guy, Emil, and Emil wanted to know whether I wanted to build a business in North America. Long story short, he ended up coming back here. He was being mentored by a guy called Jared Murphy. I'd known Murph for many, many years. And then another fellow called Warren Everett, who was running a big marketing company, who Emil had run a program for and transformed their business. So we all decided to get together and put a business together called Performance by Design. So yeah, look, it's great, mainly corporate clients, but on the back of a lot of sporting knowledge. And I mean, the biggest thing about sport is it's so accountable and it's so immediate and the, and the ability to review and preview and just keep getting better. It's just an incredible um, you know, environment to be in for 40 years. You know, translating that to business, you know, where it's the same principles now. Leaders are very different. You know, you talk about building relationships. You're talking about self-awareness. You're talking about having great empathy and understanding for your staff. So that's really, really important. So I'm really enjoying that connection. And the Nurture Group um, events, which we haven't been able to hold because of COVID, but you know, really it's about business and wellness. And I know it's something you're passionate about as well. It's notion of, well, I'll get a leadership you know, speaker in and I'll get Rusey in, but wellness, yeah, we'll, we'll park that a little bit. We've got to pull these things together. We've got to start to look at, so the Nurture Group retreats are all about pulling the, the business and the health together. You know, the last one we had, you know, we had speakers, you know, Julie Bishop, Richard DeCrepney, who landed the Qantas plane, to Nam Baldwin, who's one of the great breathing coaches in, in Australia. Um, you know, Tammy, Tammy doing the meditation to start the day. We'd get up, we'd meditate, maybe go for a walk on the beach, do some yoga, do some activity, go into to speakers, as I said, from a business point of view. So they're amazing events and we're, we're hoping to re-establish them next year, which would be amazing. So, yeah, look, I think, I think sport has always been at the forefront of high performance. Yeah, mid-90s it became full-time. Yeah, things like meditation, we, we, Tammy introduced that to Sydney back in 2002, you know, 2003. You know, it's now become more mainstream, less in business, but more mainstream now. You know, we were doing it in 2000, yeah, we were doing it 17, 18 years ago at the Sydney Swans. So, yeah, it's great to be part of a great company, Performance by Design, and working with great, great corporates, but similar challenges, you know, which is, which is fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels, which you've obviously seen plenty of. Touch on that meditation and mindfulness for a minute or two because it's well documented, the, the Sydney Swans, but just talk to express to the listeners how bloody important it's been in your life as well. Swans trying to implement it at Melbourne and now in big business. Yeah, well, I, started, I did a meditation course over 20 years ago and, you know, I think to, for me the inquisitive side of it was having been involved in sport and I started at sort of 17 at Fitzroy. There was only a certain amount. I remember we did have 
4K time trials back then and we did our 1Kers or kick marks handball. And I always thought to myself, yeah, we can improve, but, you know, you might get your your 4K time trial down from, you know, 1350 to 1345 to 1340. So the, the gap was minuscule. It was certainly worth doing, but no one had worked above the shoulders. You know, when Tammy did her PhD in meditation and, and learn about, you know, the academic side of it and how it has a dramatic impact on you know, your ability to perform at all levels of your life. And we started introducing it to, to, to Sydney. Yeah, so that was the area that was largely untapped. And there's so much research for those that haven't done it. Just read about it. Read about the effects of meditation and mindfulness. And you can see, you know, you might get a, you know, if you're an athlete, you'll get, you, know, you will get improvement if you run harder or lift weights. But the dramatic improvement, I think, um, who's the guy that does the podcast and he talks about the 100 most successful people in the world and I think 90% of them all meditate you know um, so there's a, so we were able to introduce that at Sydney Tammy did um, didn't uh, make it compulsory but it was no coincidence that some of our best players Goodsy Craig Bolton Brett Kirk were all working with Tammy and then at Melbourne we made it compulsory and it, and it had a significant impact you know, Tammy had this term called reset and worked with the players and we did some visualisation in the second and third year and the players really talked about how powerful it was to come off the ground and just talk about reset, breathing, forgetting about what had happened, getting back on the field and resetting again. So, yeah, it's been something in sport that's been going on for years and gradually the corporate world is picking up on it, um, which is fantastic, but it's certainly something we need to create a way better work environment than we, what we currently have. Yeah, because we, we speak of sport and we know... We know how important it is, but in life in general, and I think there's a misnomer in corporate world or in, in most spaces still that you've got to be cross-legged sitting in a yeah. in a room like a um, like yeah, Deepak Chopra or one yeah. of it. But it's not about that. Um, it's it's certainly not about that. And I know Tammy's dedicated her life to it. Um, I think some of us will know my wife as well. It's very heavily um, involved. We've got a meditation studio. It's all about just being being yeah. there and being present and taking a minute for yourself. And if the corporate the corporate world would just take a look. Like you said, yeah. exactly what you said about the time trial, um, that the too many checks and balances they're trying to, whereas you've got so much upside on this other end of the spectrum with above the shoulders, mindfulness and being aware. How are you being infiltrating it into businesses? I guess if they've already employed you, you're possibly preaching the converted, but how are you being with performance spotters on? How do you feel you find infiltration of that kind of stuff? Yeah, we, we now think the time is right, so we're going to add a wellness component with Tammy in, in our um, performance by design um, institute and, and center, which is a um, you know, digital sort of platform. So we're now going to. Tammy's got one minute, two minute, three minute, five minutes. So I think the time's right. We've had the conversation. Now it's up to the. So we're going to really integrate performance by design wellness center. Um, get those videos in, and we're really going to now promote that through our networks. Yeah, because you're right. It, it it certainly becomes as simple as. You know, the start of a, a sales meeting, right here, guys, we're going to sit here for a minute, close your eyes, let's just do a nice breathing exercise. We already we already talk about gratitude in our in meetings as well. So we're performance by desire, we're big on gratitude. Who would you like to thank? Someone in the room, someone outside the room, what are you grateful for? So we'll talk about that light and we'll, we'll continue to integrate these wellness practices and principles within the mainstream of our business. Yeah, that's, that's, and that's perfect. And like you said, you so much to gain from that. So if you are... A leader in business, just take that on board. Speaking of leaders in business, Rosie, um, you've, we often talk about CEOs. Just, just they must, they must become like the mainstay of the leaders, the leadership, and 
they must practice what they preach at all times. And I guess uh, speaking to culture, ask them, go and pick the newest member of the team or newest member of the, of the business. Tell us about that as well. And I guess on both ends, the CEO and the, I guess the rookie in the business too. Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing is people naturally think that if we, you know, have a, have a business, we put a sign on the wall and, you know, we get people to come in, we've got a team, it, it couldn't be further from the truth and then we'll get some, you know, purpose and values and we'll put them on the, on the board. But you've got to bring them to life and, and what we talk about is your culture is what people see, you know, and that's why it's great to ask the, you know, encourage anyone listening, ask the newest person what your culture is because I guarantee they won't remember the HR manual. They won't remember what was in the interview after a first week or two weeks, I'll actually remember the actions of the organisation. You know, did people say hello to me? You know, were people getting back to me on time? Did they reply to my emails? How did they dress? Did they turn up to meetings on time? That's your culture, all right? Now, if you can marry that up with what's on the wall and you continually reward and challenge good and bad behaviour, then you're able to shape, about, shape it. We talk about one of our main mottos of Performance by Design is take the chance out of culture. How do I take the chance out of culture? I do that by putting systems and processes in place, reward and challenge, and we consistently do that and we see that at footy clubs all the time, and then you're able to shape your culture. But the biggest thing is if the leaders aren't doing it, you're never going to have, you know, if, if your leaders are saying we want everyone to turn up on time and they're turning up 10 minutes late, then eventually no one's going to turn up on time. So your leaders have to be role models and the leaders have to walk the walk, not talk the talk. And I guess so many times, you know, I see not only in footy clubs but in businesses, the the leaders want to talk about it but they don't want to do anything about it. And that's where our system challenges the leaders, challenges the CEO, challenges the senior deck teams. And often, you know, when we do our first workshop and we're not invited back, I I can tell you why. 99% of the time is because the leaders don't want to be held accountable to their bad behaviour and they want to rule with an iron fist and they don't want people to challenge them because they know their behaviour is poor, but they don't want to change their behaviour. That's that's pretty pretty powerful. Um, and I reckon I reckon in, in life in general, that's that has to be the way. It doesn't matter if you've got um, a little two man mowing business yep. or, you, or you're in charge of five thousand uh, employees. It just has to. It, it's so obvious when you're talking about it now, but then so clear that it happens everywhere. Like yep. The opposite happens everywhere. So if you do want to be a high performer, you actually you genuinely want to become a high performer. You you mean it, then you've just got to take these principles on board. And it's not as simple as switching a, flicking a switch yeah. if it's been like inherently bad for 15, 20 years. But companies like Ruzi's and, and other leadership um, companies in board, like, you've, you've got to put leadership and culture at the top of your priority list because the rest will just, it'll be like the house of cards, just fall away. Quick fire is great, man. Oh, this, this might be, a, we'll get to the a little bit lighter stuff, but big free high performance tips for leaders, both in sport and business. Three, succinct it. <laughs> uh, honesty uh, would be one. Communication would be two. Um, and coupled with that is probably maintaining really clear and high standards. Very good at succincting stuff, Legend. Best advice for busy fathers or parents in general? Don't wait for the big stuff. I, th- I think every moment is crucial. You know, don't wait because you sort of think, well, I've got to take the kids, not that you can now, but you've got to take the kids to Disneyland or Hawaii or something like that. Every interaction is valuable. You know, reading the book at night, you know, spending five minutes in the morning, sitting down, having, having toast and a cup of coffee. Every single interaction is really important. It's a good answer, and it's really important now with, with people... Hopefully their working relationships have changed a little bit. They can spend a little bit more time post-COVID. 
what are you most proud of? This this could yeah, this could be golden day, I guess. But what are you most um, proud of? I think just that integration of family, you know, I think it was 2008 when I got nominated Australian Father of the Year and probably that was one of my proudest moments, you know, to be able to be recognised in a really busy, high-profile, stressful environment of footy coaching, to be recognised and, and to be recognised by my kids, I think, you know, but Dylan and Tyler, you know, talk about how they're appreciative when I'd come turn up on Sundays after coaching in Perth on a Saturday night, getting on the red eye and getting back for their games and that. So to be recognised by your kids is probably, and your wife is probably the most important achievement of my life, no no question. That's very well answered and I love those red eye stories, like just getting on the plane and make sure you get back for the, the boys' games. This is a little bit more of an educational one. Books, is there anything that you would give to people in business or people that just want to be better every day? Any books, movies, podcasts, anything of the liking? Yeah, I, I, I like Phil Jackson's stuff. So anything that he was a real pioneer in that area. So anyone that hasn't read any of Phil Jackson's books, now Phil Jackson was the the coach of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan, and then coached the Lakers. So he was a real pioneer in the mindfulness and meditation and challenging his players to be better people, not just better basketball players. So any of the Phil Jackson books are really interesting. On that, even if you don't follow sport, I think the Last Dance is a really, really good series. And that, is, again, is on basketball. But don't, for those of you out there who think it's, it's sports orientated, it's very much around high performance and business and relationships and standards and navigating Michael Jordan's the best basketball player of all time. But how did Phil get him to win a championship? It's really fascinating because a lot of stuff we talk to corporates about is that high-performing salesperson, you know, what do I do with them? And in real sense, Michael's the high-performing salesperson that Phil had to mould and shape into an incredible team player. So The Last Dance is a really, really good 10-part series as well on um, on high-performing teams. Couldn't agree more. Too many people probably shut the door on sporting dogs yeah. or sporting books like that when you can take so much out of it, even if you have no interest in the game. Last couple, mate, average day in the life of Rusey right now. Yeah, it's probably a bit mixed now with um, you know, working with North Melbourne, working performance by design, hopefully starting up the Nurture Retreat soon and obviously being a, a father of kids that are a bit older now, 20, you know, 25 and 20, sort of six, nearly 27 sort of thing. So, yeah, mix and match really, which I enjoy. You know, some mornings are, you know, getting into North Melbourne, doing reviews, match day was, um, you know, I try and get in the match day most times as long as they're not travelling. Yeah, to, to coffee meetings with leaders and, and you know, business executives, um, to doing workshops, which I really enjoy with, with companies. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag and um, trying to enjoy life as much as I can as right, well and get nice. a bit of exercise. You're looking very fit. I was going to say that, mate. What to, tell me about the exercise, Rajan, because you are looking fantastic as we speak. Yeah, look, I'm... Pretty lucky, you know, I think I'm still able to run and I walk with a lot of my ex-teammates who are not able to run, you know, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, Mickey's actually able to run. So I'm pretty fortunate, but I think I've had a good relationship with exercise. I've never done it to excess by that. I've never had the, felt the need to run a marathon or a triathlon because always, I've always had good self-awareness about my body. So if I run now, it's a 20-minute fartlek, you know, get over the Albert Park Lake which gives me nightmares because I used to run around it a lot when I was playing for Fitzroy. So sometimes I break into a cold sweat as I'm going around the, the bend and the winds hit me in the face because I remember, I remember pre-season when we are doing 10K <laughs> trial, trial sort of thing. But, yeah, I think I've always had a good relationship, good understanding. If I go to the gym, um, you know, I'll just go and do a 15, 20-minute you know, quick body circuit weight session. So my relationship with exercise is really good and, you know, I still think I'm – 
competitive athletes, so I'll play basketball against the boys and <laughs> get bashed around or go and have a kick with Tyler or, you know, when Dylan's back in town sort of thing. So, yeah, I, and play golf and love my tennis and just love being healthy and getting out and doing as much as I can. Well, you've got to say, and I love it, uh, the health of your business, or it all depends on the health of you or is it something like that? Name? Yeah, your own health will determine the health of your business, yeah. Well, you, you're absolutely walking example of that. What's the future hold? Yeah, well, again, I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing. I'm 57 now. You know, I, I think things have changed. We, I was talking to Tammy the other day, and we are talking about her father and my father when they retired. I think she mentioned her dad retired about 55, 57, and my dad was probably around 60 sort of thing. So, But we're living longer at the moment, and I think the more active you can become. But, you know, I've got a place in Hawaii. I look forward to spending some time over there as well and eventually, you know, moving over there at some point. Um which I'm really looking forward to as well. It's a beautiful place. You talk about exercise, you know, getting out, you know, uh, around the park, Capulani Park, sort of thing. But yeah, the next certainly two or three years, very much being involved in in the business and you know, really enjoying doing what I'm doing. We've spoken at length about those businesses, but you can give the listeners the websites. Our producer, will, of course, put all these links in the show notes for the listeners. Yeah, so Performance by Design, www.performancebydesign.com or .co, one of the two .com, I think it is. And probably the other one is, is Tammy Ruse, Tammy at TammyRuse.com. Um, you know, some really good stuff on both of those. The Nurture Group websites, um, Nurture Her, Nurture 360. And hopefully they're starting up again. We had a good meeting the other day. So we're, obviously with the COVID world trying to navigate, you know, events. So we'll, we'll talk about when they start again. But, yeah, if you can whack all those up and get them nice and accurate. Probably missed a few yeah, dots. Our, our producer is Tommy Senior. He's, I tell you what, he's fastidious with this kind of thing. Whereas he, won't, he won't miss a beat. Um, is, any, is it overseas Fiji type stuff? Yeah, Fiji. Well, it looks like we're trying to bring them on shore, which will be interesting. Yeah, which we'll try and find a really good place. But we're just trying to bed them down. Probably looking at May next year, which will be awesome. And That's brilliant. Yeah, our alumni are really looking forward to getting back together and, and you know, getting some great advice. But but getting together and we're all looking for some connection, aren't we? You know, there's a lack of connection over the last sort of 12 months. So I think everyone's looking forward to navigating what, what the new world looks like. I implore the listeners to check out all those websites because um, that will be the best thing you can do today by some margin. Um, any parting words from Paul Oh, I think it, I, I talked about a cartoon that I read and it, it really resonates with me. I've spoken about this a lot. A little kid says to his granddad, Dad, granddad, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And the granddad says, just be a good person. There's plenty of vacancies. Oh, mate, that is absolutely brilliant. Um, it's been a pleasure sitting across from Paul Ruiz. He's, he's a champion. He gives us uh, so much time so generously. Uh, mate, I really do thank you. Um, listeners, listen to part one and part two over and over again because uh, you'll pick up nuggets of wisdom the whole time, mate. Paul, thanks so much, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me.